Okay. Um, First Kings 17. I am going to read you an extraordinary story that some of you may or may not be familiar with. But then I'm actually going to read you a second story that takes place in 2 Kings that is strangely similar to this story. Um, It's uncanny, the uh, similarities between these two stories. But many of you guys know the story of Elisha and then his predecessor, Elisha, however you want to say it. Some people say Elisha, some people pronounce it different ways, but Elijah and then Elisha. Um, And basically, for those of you that don't know, During the the time of Elisha, it was actually said of King Ahab that he did more wickedly and more evil than any other king that had gone before him. So that, that, just to set the stage for the time and the place and the era that Elisha was living in. He was living under one of the most evil, wicked reigns uh, during that time in history. But the extraordinary thing is that even though it was evil, evil and wicked as far as the king was concerned, the Lord raised up one of the most extraordinary prophets during that moment in that time. So for those of you that might look at your surrounding circumstances of Boston and think that you're in a cold, barren, God-forsaken place, maybe the Lord has sent you here for such a time as this to be an Elijah in the middle of a wicked and perverse place that a prophetic spirit would rest upon you and you would be used to testify and show forth his miraculous power. So here we have Elijah. For those of you that don't know, uh, just preceding where we're going to pick up actually in verse 7 is actually the testimony of the the three-year drought that's taking place. Elisha prophesied that there would be three years of no rain, that there would be a drought in the land. That's crazy. I I mean, we won't have time right now to go into all the ramifications upon that, upon society, upon economics, all of those things, but it has massive ramifications. So three-year drought. So what does the Lord do? He actually sends a raven by the brook to feed uh, Elisha. I actually love, let's just, before we even go any further, let's just stop and say the provision of God came through a raven. Just meditate on that for a moment. The provision of God came through a raven, that it can come through any source. I remember when Daryl and I were contemplating the person that uh, offered to fund us so that Daryl could leave his job. He had a wonderful job. We had a lot of job security, you know, great health benefits, all of those things. And I remember when this offer came to us, neither Daryl and I were like, yippee, support. <laughs> we were more like, ooh, who would choose that? <laughs> who chooses that life? Uh, so that really wasn't desirable for us. And I can remember sitting and talking with one of our pastoral friends, and, and Daryl was like, I think I'm going to stick with my job. You know, I'll just do the ministry. I'm, you know, I'm a, a priest before the Lord. I'll still do night and day prayer. I'll build it up. But I'd like to be in the workforce and provide well for my family. We don't want to go without, you know, all of those things. But yet we had, obviously, the Lord offering, providing um, a source for us to do full-time ministry. And I, I remember this wise pastoral friend, because Daryl's like, so what if, like, this support comes through for, like, a year, two years, and then after that, he's like, and I lose my awesome job. For this. And, you know, we were kind of going through the ramifications of you just never know when you're trusting the Lord, right? You don't know. So this wise pastoral friend of us looked at us and he said, well, he said, you just trust. He said, Elijah was fed from the raven and then the Lord used a widow. That the source may change dramatically, but the provision of God remains. And I, we still actually took a month after that to pray. <laughs> we still weren't sold. Uh, <laughs> but finally he contacted that individual and said, 
the Lord spoke to us. And it was that that we actually had the confidence to say, God spoke to us. And so we have the peace to move forward with this. But extraordinary that the Lord uses a raven for Elisha, feeds, feeds Elisha by a raven. And then if you pick up in verse 7, it says, And it happened after a while that the brook dried up. Remember? There was a drought. The brook dried up. Okay. Because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow. Everybody say, a widow. A widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please bring me a little water in a cup that I might drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said to him, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. I'm going to stop here before we go any further. Number one, this is a widow. She's a poor widow. She only has enough flour and she only has enough oil to be able to provide basically a lump of bread for her and her son to have their last meal to eat and then they're going to die. Remember, there's a famine in the land. So let me just say this. Number one, the Lord is going to use a widow who she herself would actually be uh, classified as one in need of charity, of one in need of provision, of one in lack, of one that is poor. But instead, the Lord is going to use her to bring provision to the prophet. Number one, we actually find where we read in the New Testament that the Lord uses the weak things to confound the wise. He uses the foolishness of the earth. And this we actually find he uses a weak widow. He uses a poor, destitute, needy widow. So Elisha comes. (laughs) Don't you love him? It's a drought in the land. And he says, bring me a cup of water. Water? Water? Water in a drought? The brook dried up. The brook was not babbling. There was no water to be found. He asks for water in the middle of a drought. And what's her response? She gets up to go get the water. There's no like, could you go find another dumb widow? (laughs) Could you go find somebody else that cares? Could you? I have a son I'm trying to provide for. So we find the poor widow that the Lord's going to provide through. We find Elisha asking for water. Where's she going to pull that out of? In the middle of a drought. And her heart response is, Absolutely. It says she arises to go get the water. There's no bickering. There's no complaining. There's no sarcasm. (laughs) None of that. She arises to go get, I actually wonder like if she knew where she was going to get the water from. Like, (laughs) like, I mean, she rose to get the water. Amazing. It speaks volumes actually of generosity of when we are ourselves are in a position of need of actually giving out of that place of need. So then what does he go on to say? Verse 11, let's pick it up there. He asks in 10, he asks for a little water in a cup that I might drink. Small request in a drought, right? And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. 
And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I might go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elisha's response in verse 13 is, do not fear. He says to her first and foremost, and he has to because of what he's going to say next. (laughs) He says, do not fear. And then his response, he goes on and says, go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first. So before you provide for yourself and your son, make a cake first for me and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself afterward. Afterward. (laughs) He doesn't even say, let's make it and then divvy it up in threes. He says, make me some, let me eat it, and then you go make some for yourself. And he says, first, I can tell you as a mom of a child that I obsess over, he might be borderline, like it might be idolatry in my life, my kid. I deal with it before the Lord. I'm keeping it straight. Don't worry. But my kid is a big deal to me. I'd be all like quoting 1 Timothy 5.8 to him. You care for your, the, the ones in your own household. If you don't care for the one in your own household and if you don't provide for the ones in your own family first, you're worse than an unbeliever. I know that she couldn't have quoted 1 Timothy. But I'm pretty big on you provide, you know, people that aren't providing for their own and caring for their own or just getting their butt out of bed to go work and provide. I would all be like, you're supposed to provide for your own first. I'm going to provide for my kid. I don't even have to eat. But my kid's going to eat, and then you can eat. Okay, bro? (laughs) Extraordinary. He says, bring it to me first. Bring it to me first. And then what do we find? Verse 14, for thus says the Lord your God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. What he promises is he says, if you care for me first, if you provide me the bread that I'm asking of you, he promises that the oil and the flour are not going to go dry until the drought ends. And what did I say? It's a three-year drought. So she literally had, some scholars speculate, two years from this point was the end of the drought. Two years of endless supply. He says, provide for me first, and then you watch. What you have will not run out. I mean, this is right here when we want to talk about the principle of sowing and reaping, where if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. This right here is it in action that she sows literally all she has left. She sows the last of her flour, the last of her oil, the only meal that she could have provided for her child. She sows bountifully. She sows, even that word in the Greek is generously. She sows generously and she reaps generously. You know, this, actually, this story reminds me of how many of you are familiar with um, Jim Elliott? He's the missionary that died in Ecuador. Jim Elliott died in Ecuador. He went and sowed his life amongst the most barbaric, I think they actually said like amongst this village. What is it? One out of two people amongst the villagers died because they were such a murderous people. Can you imagine volunteering to go be a missionary there? (laughs) 
So Jim Elliott, for those of you guys that don't know, Jim Elliott was born to a very wealthy family. He had the provision so that he was able to go to university, which he did, good boy. And in the process of that, there was, it was actually said that he was a great orator, that he had wonderful speaking ability and even wonderful dramatic abilities, so they knew that he would be used in the public eye to be a great communicator. So there is such promise and hope of greatness, of, of success, and of wealth upon his life. And instead of that, he actually decided to go be a missionary. <laughs> and you guys, many of you have probably heard this famous quote, and it's actually from Jim Elliott, not because he preached it publicly. It was in a journal as he was wrestling through the call of God upon his life. And Jim, it's Jim Elliott that says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Meaning the sowing of what we cannot keep anyway. That we have no control over our lives. Let's just be honest, whether it's, you know, even my son. I have no control over my son. I have no control over the number of the days of his life. How many of you guys know I have friends that have had, had great tragedy, the loss of children at young age. In this life, what we have, the people that we hold dear, even the, the materialistic things, degrees, jobs, status, success, things that we might acquire, those are things we have no control over because in a, in a blink of an eye, it can all be gone. And many of us know those devastating stories of going from, whether it could be ministry, it could be business, wherever it may be, but of plateaus of success in life, that in a moment it all crumbles. But the extraordinary thing is when all the externals go away, when all the externals go away, it's ultimately what's in within us, the inward reality, the reality of the indwelling Christ the understanding of the eternal and how we've sown into the eternal that will remain and will last. That's why if you ever, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity, I've had the opportunity of sitting with men that have had great prestige in business and finance. And when there's devastation and loss, there's still such a sense of peace and stability and consistency. And you scratch your head and you kind of go, wait one second, <laughs> you lost it all. But you know what? Their confidence, their security, and identity was never found there. They understand, like Job, the Lord gives and he takes away. The Lord gives and he takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. The understanding that it's this, this temporary life, that it's but a, a, a vapor, it's a glimpse. It goes away in the fleeting of an eye. And this widow, what we actually find is what she could have held on to. Let's be honest, she could have consumed it. They could have consumed their last meal. And then that would have been the end of her and her son. But we find in the giving that, that, that that's actually where there's life. How many of you guys are familiar with the passage of Scripture in the New Testament that says, those that seek to find their life will lose it? The more we're seeking to find security and identity and significance and importance in a temporal age, the more we're drowning in this life. But the more we seek to lose our life, what that means is abandon our life to Jesus Christ.
Jesus Christ. Of saying, my life is not my own anyways. I have no control over it. You number my days. You order my steps. You provide increase. And you also choose when to take it away. Those that seek to lose their life will find it. That in seeking to abandon your life, you actually find life and joy and liberty. As we, even as Jesus declared, freely you have received. Freely give. See, the message that we're talking about today is not even about money, actually. It's about the posture of the heart and the posture that we take in the place of hoarding and giving unto ourselves, of trying to preserve our own life, our own uh, image of what our life is supposed to be. I actually love, how many of you guys know the story of Domino's Pizza? Famous, right? Domino's. Anybody know the story of the owner of Domino's? Okay, am I the only one? <laughs> I guess I like to study the lives of some of these people. This guy, he starts out with a small local pizza shop. It's actually a really cute story of how, like, there was this sign, and the guy's name was Dominic, and he got the sign for cheap. <laughs> it's just kind of like he ended up naming his pizza shop Dominic's because the sign was cheap or whatever the situation was. Well, the pizza shop grew and grew and grew, and he had franchises around the city, and he actually was the very first person that established pizza delivery. Like, there was no pizza delivery before Domino's, and so he brought it on the market, but also he perfected it. So what happened was, is this Dominic character, whoever signed this originally one, he finally came along and he was like, I don't want you using my name anymore. It's my sign, my Dominic, I want it back. <laughs> like, almost like by taking the name and the sign that he's going to, like, get the success. I don't know what he thought about that. But, so he says, you can't use Dominic's anymore. So he, this guy, now that he's successful and has this pizza company, he's like, I'll call it Dom, Domino's. <laughs> Comes up with Domino's. Domino's Pizza, as we know, is famous. But the extraordinary thing about Domino's Pizza is this man had, let's just be honest, wealthy, right? I mean, it's Domino's. It's a huge franchise. He's got planes and cars and automobiles and boats and all his stuff. And then he said that he actually read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Anybody in the house? <laughs> read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And he said when he got to the part about pride... <laughs> That he always knew that he was a prideful man, but he said what actually shook him to the very core of his being was from reading C.S. Lewis, he began to realize that it's not so much that he was prideful, but his ambition in life wasn't just to be great. It was to be greater than other people. So he was driven by this competitiveness of always wanting more to go higher, more successful, do more. But it wasn't even driven out of a God-given dream of what he was called to do. It was in competition, which ultimately ends up with strife with other people. Because let's just be honest, there's always going to be somebody one-upping you. I mean, someone's always going to have a bigger car, a bigger house, a bigger diamond. A bigger... I mean, and if that is the place where your eyes are upon, you're going to be in constant unrest in the chasing for more and more. I mean, there might be people in this room that even think, like, if I just could make, like, an extra 50000 a year, like, just an extra 50000 that would be enough for me and my family, and we could live comfortably. I guarantee you, you make the extra 50000 a year, you're going to get there, and it's going to turn into just an extra 
25,000 would actually get me to what I need to be comfortable to. It, in all honesty, it's the human heart that lusts after more. It's never enough. It's never. Bill Bright, actually. Um, do you guys, Bill Bright, Campus Crusade for Christ? I mean, world renowned. He's preached the gospel to more people on the planet than he's deceased now. But the amount of money that actually came through his hands because of ministry and preaching the globe, he actually said that he and his wife made a, a, a not a covenant, a, a, a contract, actually. That's the word he used. He made a contract before the Lord in their early years when they started getting a vision for campus ministry and things like that. And they basically made a vow before the Lord that when he would do public speaking, I mean, he did stadium events, he was all over the place, that he would not receive an honorarium. What? You're in the ministry, dude. Why not? Like, that's what you live off of, right? But they actually decided, and they set their max, that they would never get more than $60,000 a year for their couple. I don't know how many kids they had, <laughs> if they had kids. But that's, that's extremely uh, modest. <laughs> so it's not that he didn't have the potential for more. He actually, and hear me, hello, every person in the room, I'm not saying this is what you're called to. Like, don't get into, like, comparing and all of that. I'm using him as a model and a testimony. That he felt like before the Lord that he was supposed to set it at that so that there was never even the question or the longing or the increasing. You know, one of the things that, that's what I've said to Daryl, is it's a powerful thing that as the wealth that comes through your hands increases, you intentionally choose that um, your lifestyle of living does not increase with it. Not saying everybody has to do that, but it actually enables us and brings us to a place that we're able to give more than we're actually consuming ourselves. And this is actually what Bill Bright did, is he capped it at 60,000. They have crazy, crazy testimonies of how the Lord provided for them. I mean, the extraordinary opportunities that they had, but the money that they were able to give. And this is actually what we find from the story of this widow, is we find the place of multiplication. That most of us growing up in the American system, our mindset, not, forget, forget money. I'm not even talking about a monetary sense of handing money to the homeless man on the street. I'm talking the giving of ourselves. I'm talking, I'll use it to you in this way. This shows you how much of a hold things have on us. I had made a decision when, uh, in my young adult years that I never wanted to have like an attachment to certain items as if it was like mine, my possession, I identify with it and had some kind of a, a, a clinging or a bonding to it. So early on, I don't do it with everything. It's not all the time. But if I feel a twinge of something in my heart, here's an example. I was out in Kansas City one time and I had my favorite scarf on my absolute favorite scarf. <laughs> Loved my scarf. And this, this person actually said to me, they walked up and they were like, I love your scarf. And I immediately said, would you like it? And you could see they actually, the, the look on their face was kind of like, that's awkward. You know? <laughs> and it's somebody I know very well. And I said, no, I'm serious. I said, do you want it? And they, and they were like, yeah, I would love it. And I'm like, then it's yours. Yeah. <laughs> then it's yours. But you want to know, I'll, I'll be straight up honest with you. I love the scarf so much. I literally, for like a couple of weeks afterwards, I didn't want it back. I just kept thinking, I, I really hope she's wearing that. Because if she's not, <laughs> that was completely in vain. <laughs> 
but it's good for us. I mean, it's really good for us. It frees your heart and your soul. That instead of holding on that this is me, this is mine, this is what I hold on to, it actually reveals how we see God. Our posture of what we hold on to and what we're willing to release, it reveals our view and our image of God. And another funny story is I, I, I found, eh, you guys don't even care, in New Report, there's this really, really cute shop that has home decor things. And I had found this little plaque. It was like made out of metal with a chain, and it said, love deeply. It was just like hand scripted. It was really pretty. I used to have it hanging in my bedroom. <laughs> used to is the key. Um, so I had this thing that I loved hanging in my bedroom. And one day when Lou and Therese were over, Therese Ingle actually looked at it, and she was like, oh, I love that. And no lie, <laughs> no lie, I'm looking at the thing kind of going, I will buy her another one. I will buy her one. I'm not giving that away. <laughs> and then I remember thinking, it was from that specialty shop, and I, they only had one. And, and then uh, this is going through my head. I'm like, I'll just search online. I'm going to look for one. I'm like, I have never seen another one of those. I mean, this is all going back and forth in my mind. And then as I turned my, and she's like, oh, I just love it so much. I love the saying. I love, you know, she's like, she's not asking for it, but she likes it. And so <laughs> I literally look up at my wall, and I go, oh, great. I'm going to have love deeply hanging on my wall, but not hanging in my heart. Like, every time I look at it, I'm going to think, you selfish jerk. You know? So I'm like looking at the love deeply, and I'm like, here, here, you can have this. And she's like, no, I couldn't. And I actually didn't argue with her. I, I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then she went, really? And I went, yeah, yeah, you can have it. I mean, I've looked for one since, can't find one anywhere, but that's not the point. <laughs> the point is this. <laughs> Over the past few years, every home that I've gone to that they live in, over her sink is love deeply. And as a mom of seven children, a woman who sacrifices greatly for the ministry, she's told me story after story after story of time she's been at her kitchen sink just wrestling through issues of her heart and she's looked up and seen love deeply and what it's meant to her. And you want to know something? When the word of God says it's more blessed to give than it is to receive, there is something in our heart that gets set free and delivered when we give rather than hoarding. So whether it's the materialistic one item some, some of us, it's an issue of time. It really is an issue of time. It's, that's my time. That's my time. That's my time, and you're infringing upon my time. <laughs> you know, whatever the issue may be. But we find this widow, what actually takes place. So she went away in verse 15 and did according to the word of Elisha, and she and her household ate for many days. Verse 16, the bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar, run oil, jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elisha. And then we find actually the very next story concerning this widow is now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. So now the widow's son is sick. And this sickness was so serious that it, there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elisha, what have I, have I to do with you, O man of God? 
Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him up to the upper room where he was staying. And he laid, on, laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing, by, by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elisha. And the soul of the child came back to him and he revived And Elisha took the child and brought him down from the upper room and into the house and gave him to the mother. And Elisha said, See, your son lives. Then the woman said to to Elisha, By this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth and is the truth. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Those that sow sparingly reap sparingly. Those that so bountifully, she gave of all she had. Do you even realize that when she gave of what she had, she wasn't even seeking the preservation of her son's life because it was the food that she had to provide for her son. And what actually came back to her is that in her son's illness and in his death, the Lord provided bountifully that it opened actually the door to the miraculous. This is actually what we find in the law of sowing and reaping is that when we stand according to our own wisdom and our own ability, that we actually are limiting the supernatural in our life. You know what it's saying? It's saying, this is what I can afford, this is what I can do, this is what I'm comfortable with. And even when we're in the realm of logic of saying, and this is what profits me. This is how much profits me. When we move it out of the realm of self-seeking, into the realm of honoring God, when we move it out of the realm even of logic of saying, this doesn't even make sense. This kind of giving of myself doesn't even make sense. Do you know what we do at that moment in time? We open up the door to the supernatural. We open up the door to saying, I am opening the door for God to intervene And to provide, hey, mind you here, for every person that's like, okay, she's talking about money, she's talking about offering. I'm not, did the widow even give any money? She gave nothing. She gave her oil and her bread. She gave all that she had in her hand. And did she provide, did she get money in return? She didn't get money in return. She got a two-year supply of oil and flour to provide for her family, and she got her dead son raised. Let me ask you a question. How do you quantitate that? How do you put money or finance or amount upon the supernatural raising of your son? See, many of us in this room, and I'll just say the Cambridge, Boston area, the reason we are lacking the realm of the supernatural is because we're living so much according to our wisdom, our reason, and our logic. It makes sense to my mind, and so I'm going to walk it out this way. When, when the word of God comes, it makes no sense to the logical mind. None whatsoever. If we are still measuring how much we're giving to the Lord, whether that's in time or even in uh, areas of, of surrender in our lives, we have not even scratched the surface of understanding his worth. We have not even begun to understand the vastness of, even in Psalms where David says, 
Give to the Lord glory and honor. Give to him the glory that's due his name. He's not even saying, give your 10% to the Lord. Give the minimal required. He's saying, give him the glory that is due his name. And literally what that means is give him the honor that he deserves from your life. How do we glorify him? It's that we place him before all else, above all else, and at the center of all else. That is the way we give him the glory that he deserves. See, this is the mystery of it. He is not looking for our 10-minute devotional. <laughs> he is not looking for your required minimal of what we must give, for him, give to him. He is looking for that place of total surrender, total abandon. He's looking for the widow, that all she has is her oil and her flour. And in the place where he says, do not fear. He says, do not fear. See, as long as we're living in fear of lack, it's because we've yet to understand the heart of God. As long as we're living thinking I need to grind it out and work it out and toil it out for myself, to care for myself, because no one else is looking out for me. It's when we begin to understand the extravagance of God that we understand I have no fear. I have no fear of lack. I have no fear of going without you know, there's a, a young woman that I know that probably a year or maybe two years ago had come to me with a very sincere question, and I shared my heart. This young girl was saying, you know, because of issues of debt in her life, um, I think it was a parent or somebody had counseled her that the wisest thing to do is rather than paying, uh, paying tithes and offerings, that instead put the money towards your debts. And because I'm close to this young woman and have the liberty to share my feelings, <laughs> I actually looked at her and I just said, you know what? I'm like, I respect you as an adult if that's what you feel to do. But I can honestly tell you that if I were in that situation, that that is not what I would do. I would honor God in the place of saying, you know what, God, I'm giving to you my first fruits because this debt is far beyond me. I could, and I'm going to be honest with you, I see the way that these two scenarios work out is when we go in our logic of going, I'm going to be a faithful steward, I'm going to pay off my debt, and then I'll pay my tithes. I honestly believe that in that place that this young person would never be at a place of seeing the debt paid off because the principle of sowing and reaping would have been completely missed, completely gone. So I challenged this young person and I said, I understand that the council was to put it towards your debt. I said, but how about you faithfully pay your tithe and you open the door to the realm of the supernatural? Open up the door and say, God, this debt is too big. Obviously, be faithful to pay the minimum that's due. I'm not saying don't pay your tithe. But I challenged this person. I said, but give to God first and foremost even as an act of surrender of saying, God, this is beyond me and bigger than me, so come and intervene. And that's literally what we find with this widow, is we find that all she had was the oil and the flour. And by her giving to Elisha first and before all else, what she actually did is she opened up the realm for the supernatural to intervene instead of, according to her logic, saying, this is all I have, so I'm hoarding and I'm holding on to it. In the place where we give and we sow, whether it's into the kingdom of God or into individual people, whatever that may look like, we open up the realm for the supernatural 
in, in our life. And you know what happens, whether it's finance or provision, it goes outside the realm of what we can measure and what we can calculate. See, that's the beauty of it. I, before I met my husband, I was a missionary. I lived from the place of support. And I can honestly say to you, the numbers never lined up. Even in the sense that it might not have been physical money coming into my hand, but three weeks paid vacation in Europe. Uh, and, and in the midst of it, I worked in a trip to Herrenhut, Germany, so I could go to the 100-year prayer watchtower. <laughs> I mean, the first iPhone that ever came out, the per, uh, the, like literally it was just coming out, somebody bought for me. What I'm saying is when the principle says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things to you. The question is, what is it that we're seeking? What is it that we're seeking? Because if we're seeking the materialistic, lowly, carnal, temporal, corruptible, that's going to be gone here, here today, gone tomorrow, we're not seeking after the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we're being robbed of life. But when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then everything can just be added unto us. It's just a bonus. And the extraordinary thing is it has no hold on our heart because it's him we're after. It's him we desire. So whatever is added or whatever is taken away from that point. Matthew, I'm actually going to read you guys the whole text before we close out. Matthew 6.19 Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on this earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad... Your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in your darkness, sorry, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about your life. This is what we found Elisha saying to the widow. He said, don't worry. Crazy. Make bread for me first. <laughs> and then yourself. <laughs> Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Verse 28, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say that, that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes this grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. Therefore, verse 31, 
do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need of all things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Therefore, once again, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we find repeatedly the exhortation to do not worry. And that's actually what we find where Elisha was speaking to the widow. He was encouraging her, do not worry. And the place of us living in a posture of worry is actually what causes us to hoard to ourself and even keep for ourselves for fear of tomorrow. And when we have a clear understanding and a clear view of God is actually when it releases us in liberty and it releases us in the joy of giving. And then if you actually uh, turn to 2 Kings 4. We find once again, 2 Kings 4, 8. Uh, just for the sake of time, I'm just going to review this a little bit with you. This is actually the story, once again, this isn't a widow. This is actually a husband and a wife. And Elisha had actually been coming through their town. And this is extraordinary. This speaks about generosity. Here in this passage of scripture, she goes to her husband and she says, can we basically have a specific room set aside for Elisha? Can we have a room that when he comes to travel through town, he can stay in? Because he would come and stop and see them. And the husband basically says, sure, we can prepare a room for him. So number one, I mean, like I'd already said, the principle of generosity, it's giving more than is necessary or expected. You know, Alicia could have come through town and very happily just continued to stay with him, but she had it in her heart and she had a desire to go further, to do something more, to go beyond what was expected or even necessary. So she prepares this room. So then we actually find, once again, the place of provision for the prophet Elisha, that as she provides, what we actually find is he found rest there. And then we find, he basically is like, how can I repay her? What can I do? What can I provide for this woman that has provided for me? Because he was blessed and he was strengthened by this house. And how many of you know this woman was barren? She never had a child. So as Elisha's discussing with his assistant, he's basically saying, Should we talk to the king on her behalf? Should we call the commanders of the armies? Like, what is it that we can do that would be a blessing to her? How do we give back to her because of what she's done? And his assistant says, she hasn't had a child and she desires a son. They pull this woman aside, they call her, and they basically, he doesn't even ask her what she wants. She says, he says to her, you will conceive a son. You will bring forth a son. This woman in her place of sowing bountifully, of giving bountifully to Elisha, we actually find she reaps bountifully. And we find this story, so it says a year later, it's literally one year from the time, she has a son, just as the prophet had prophesied. And then we find in verse 18 that the child grew. And now it happened one day that he went out to to the father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, my head, my head, So he said to the servant, carry him to the mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. Her child dies right there. Her child of promise 
that the prophet had promised her. This barren woman finally has a son, and here he is, he dies. Verse 21, and she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him, and went out. Then she called her husband and said, please send me one of your young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and and come back. I don't even know if the husband knew the kid was dead. Like she doesn't even mention. She says, I'm going to go get the man of God and then I'm going to come back. And he said, why are you going to him? Question. It's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, it is well. Hello. (laughs) I mean, he's out in the field working. I'm not sure she even mentioned. It's nowhere in the text that she even mentions to him. She's going to go get the prophet and she says, it's well. 24. And then she saddled a donkey and she said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was that when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to his servant, look, the Shulamite woman, verse 26, please run now and meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And she answered, this is what she says to the assistant. It is well. (laughs) She knew the assistant wasn't going to help her. She was looking for the prophet. She knew that the prophet was going to be able to see. I think she went with such a confidence in telling everybody, it's well, it's well, because my kid is going to be raised to life. So she stood with that confidence. And now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Begazi came near, this is the assistant, came near to her to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone for her soul is in deep distress and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Verse 28, so she said to him, did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Her point being, I never asked you for a son. I didn't ask for this. So the Lord isn't taking it away because I asked for something illegitimately. You promised me a son, and I asked you, do not deceive me. Verse 29, and then he said to Gehazi, get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him, but lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he sends the assistant to go lay the staff on the child. She's standing there and she's saying, I'm not leaving you. I'm not going with him. I'm not going back to my kid. I'm staying right here with you until you go to my child. <laughs> the assistant went ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there were neither voice nor hearing. Therefore, he went back to meet him. So the assistant come back. Therefore, he went back to meet him and told him, saying, the child has not awakened. Then Alicia came back into the house There was the child laying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth to his mouth and his eyes to his eyes and his hands to his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth, stretching himself on him. And then the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, call the Shulamite woman. So, she, she, so he called her. And when she came in to him, she said, pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. 
So once again, we actually find the story of the provision that she gave extravagantly, she gave generously, beyond what was expected, beyond what is necessary, beyond what is required. She gave and provided for this prophet. And then what we actually find is number one, she reaped in the bearing of a son. Her barrenness was broken and she brings forth a son. But not only does she bring forth a son, when the son falls ill and dies, the son is resurrected to new life. What we find throughout the Old Testament passages, but also the exhortation of Jesus Christ to seek first the kingdom of God and the promise. I mean, it is such an extraordinary promise when he says that those that sow sparingly will reap sparingly. Those that sow sparingly, you will be limited to your own strength and your own resources and what you can calculate and come up with. But those that sow abundantly, those that sow generously, will reap generously because they've opened up the door to the supernatural. They've opened up the door to the miraculous and said, God, my life is not my own. You own it all anyway. So it's yours have it all and intervene. And then what happens is the inbreak of heaven in our lives. We begin to see angelic activity in our lives because we've moved beyond reason. See, hello us in Cambridge, the intellectuals of the world. I want all of you that are called to get degrees in law and business and, and be in medicine, all of those things. I want you to have high, high vision for where God's called you to walk. But I also want you to walk with such great abandonment that your life is not your own. It is not the seeking of this life, but it is the seeking of the kingdom of God that you are vessels that are called to release the kingdom of God. See, when you're focused as the word of God says in Matthew 16, but also in Matthew 6, when you're focused on the getting of your own possessions and the securing of your own life, do you know what you've become? You've become one that is conscious of your own kingdom. I'm building my kingdom. I'm securing it for me, my own, and those behind me. I want my son to have a good inheritance. You know what? If my, I, I mean, I kind of named my son thinking he would be a theologian one day. <laughs> I thought he would write books and <laughs> have a love for Hebrew and Greek. But you know what? If my son instead chooses the path of someone like Jim Elliott, of saying, I want to sow my life in Ecuador, a young man of promise, of intellect, of potential, of high calling. But yet he has such a burning desire to abandon his life. How many of us as parents would almost want to refrain our child from that way of suffering? Because of our American mindset. Our American mindset of self-preservation and the seeking of our own. Where the word of God calls us. That those that seek to save their life, you're going to lose it. The more you're chasing after life in this age, the more even like the founder of Domino said, he wasn't even looking for success. He was looking to outbeat the guy next to him. He wanted to be bigger and greater and supersede. He was losing life. He lost his life in the pursuit of even competing with others. But then he promises, if you'll lose my li your life for my sake, you're going to find it. I promise you, the more you abandon yourself to a life of devotion, a life of surrender and consecration to Jesus Christ, you will find a life 
a life of peace, a life of joy, a life of liberty. You won't be held in a prison of even man-made desire and bondage for what you can get and acquire and attain. You won't be in a prison of comparison of who has outsmarted you, who has out uh, GPA'd you, <laughs> all of those things. Because there's always going to be somebody that's bigger and better. But the extraordinary thing is when you're living before the eyes of one. And simply saying, what is the portion that you've called me to in this life? That I find contentment with you and you alone. As Job said, you give and you take away. See, that way the Lord can add abundance to you but it's not going to change the internal reality and the internal stability. You know, I know we talked a lot about abandon and surrender and all of those things, and I want to encourage every single person in this room, it looks different for all of us. You know, you might not be, let me just say this, Bill Bright capped his at 60,000. You might be called to entertain presidents, so you need a dining room this size. You might need that. And if that's your calling before the Lord, and you know that you're living with abandonment to him and surrender, then go forward with confidence in that. Daryl and I have a friend that she's, she was able to pay $3 million cash <laughs> for her home that she owns in California. But I can tell you, material things actually have no hold on her whatsoever. So you can't judge by the outward. So every person in this place, I'm not asking anybody to take a vow of poverty. Please don't. <laughs> what I'm saying is the place of liberty comes from generosity. That we would not be held in a prison by seeking life that is temporal and carnal. And before we even, I know my funny story about my plaque that says love deeply. And I had to let it go or else I wasn't really loving deeply. <laughs> Funny stories and all of that. But aside from even giving away our favorite scarf, aside from giving away our last oil and our last flower, when King David said, give to the Lord glory and honor, give to him the glory that's due his name. Let's look, before we even look at possessions and materialism or finance or giving of things, the place of giving of ourselves to the Lord generously. And that's actually what we find with, with Mary of Bethany, was the giving of herself in an extravagant way. This is what we find throughout the word of God. The example of, of Jim Elliot was the giving of himself in an extra, extravagant way. I never, never finished the stories of, of dominoes for you guys. This gentleman, literally what he ended up doing was he decided that he sold dominoes. He was no longer doing that. But he decided that he wanted to give all of his money away. And one of the things that he did, one of the things he did with his wealth, is he started a university. He's now the president of a university, but he's taken such a vow of poverty, he actually lives in one of the dorm rooms. I mean, crazy. <laughs> it's totally crazy. But you know what? It's truly, it's, it's unnecessary, and it's not expected. Nobody would have ever expected that of him, but it's a generous response. And that's the thing. When we see the worthiness of Christ, 
when we see his worth and his majesty, when we begin to say, even as Paul said, set your affections on things that are above, not on things of this world. When we begin to set our affections upon him, we get a glimpse for something bigger, something grander, something more excellent than our own life and our own kingdom of what we can acquire and attain, and even the name that we can create for ourselves, we get a vision of the kingdom of God and of his glory and of his splendor. And it's in that place that we're set free from self. The Psalmist David, how many of you guys are familiar with Psalms 27? I'm actually going to turn there as we just close out with this passage. You guys are all familiar with the Psalmist David, I'm sure. The psalmist David is the one who had a vision and a call and a desire that he he said to the Lord, I want to build you a house. Night and day worship and prayer was instituted through the psalmist David. Extraordinary. But also that when he was going to be acquiring the land to be able to start that house, how many of you guys are familiar? He went to go buy the property. And when he went to the gentleman at the threshing floor to buy the property, the guy said, I'll just give it to you. You can just have it. Just have it. Just have the property. And the psalmist David is the one that responded and said, I will not offer my God sacrifices that cost me nothing. That place that we don't give out of our excess, but we give out of the place of sacrifice. And it's also the psalmist David that says in Psalms 27, 4, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord, to dwell in his house and to inquire in his temple. How many of you guys are familiar with the psalmist David actually being king? He had all of the power, all of the military strength. He had all of the wealth available to him. So above all of that, the psalmist David declares, one thing I have desired of the Lord, that one thing will I seek. And it's the place that we seek him above all else that there's no competing factors in our life, but one thing I desire of the Lord. And that what he was saying was, I'm seeking him and desiring him above all else, above every other thing. So we find the psalmist David declaring that above everything else, that he would seek the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Why is that? It's because nothing compares with the presence of God. Nothing compares with beholding him. Nothing compares to coming into union and fellowship and agreement with his heart. And the way that we do that is the continual laying down of our lives. That when we seek to save our life, we will lose it. But when we seek to lose our life for his sake, we'll find new life. I want us to close out with a word of prayer. If everybody wants to stand to your feet. God, we come before you this evening, and God, we we confess, Father, that so much in our culture, in our society, Lord, is focused upon self, Lord, upon what we can acquire, what we can attain. Lord, the image that we portray and present, and God, even self-preservation, the planning for our future. But God, we recognize before you, God, in this place, Lord, that even with that, God, that There's many of us, God, that even have fear concerning provision, fear concerning our life and even our status in life. 
God, we confess to you, Lord, that even with economics, God, that there are many, Lord, in fear of future job security, fear of even retirement and what that looks like. But God, we're reminded today as we look into your word that your word declares, Lord, that truly those are the things that the Gentiles seek. That when we're chasing after things of this earth, that we're chasing after the temporal. And God, we say that we do not want to be people, Father, that cling to this life, that cling to the temporal, but God, we want to be people of the eternal and the supernatural. God, we want the windows of our heart, the door to our heart to be open wide for the realm of possibility in the supernatural. God, we confess before you in this place, Lord, that that most of us, Lord, had we been that widow with Elijah asking us for oil and flour, God, that we would cling to it with everything within us for fear of our future. But God, we confess before you tonight, Father, that it's, it's more a revelation of our lack of understanding you. God, we say that we do not want to be people that are confined by the natural realm. Lord, we do not want to be people that are confined to our own wisdom and our own resource, our own toiling and our own labor. God, we say, Lord, that we do not want to be carnal Christians that are so tied up, Lord, in the lowly and the earthly. But God, we long to be people of the supernatural. So God, I ask you, Lord, for for the congregation underneath the sound of my voice. But God, I also ask you, God, for the multitudes of individuals, God, all throughout Cambridge and and Boston, Lord, this metropolitan area. God, we say, Lord, give us a vision of your greatness, Father. Lord, that supersedes, Father, the lowliness, Lord, of our own life and our own toil and labor. Lord, I ask, Father, that you would give us a vision of who you are, a vision for the kingdom of God. Lord, I ask, Lord, that beyond word, Lord, and in reality, God, that we as a people would truly seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God, we want to seek you first above all else. We place you before all else and above all else. That you would have the preeminence. God, we ask, Lord, as a congregation of people, Father, if we have prayed for revival and awakening in the Northeast, God, we say, begin with us, Father. Lord, break us out of the realm of the natural. Lord, break us out of the realm of reasoning, Lord, that has gridlocked us to such temporary earthly things. God, we say tonight that we set our affections, we set our meditations, Lord, we set our thoughts and our desires and our passions on things that are above, things that are eternal, things that are incorruptible, that are not fading. And God, we ask that tonight you would give us a greater vision for the eternal and the supernatural.
Jesus' name. If there's anybody that wants prayer. I was just going to say that. If there's anybody who needs prayer, um, and specifically on this topic, you know, I think the first thing that our minds tend to go to when we talk about generosity is finances. And that, if if your mind's there, you're totally missing the point. Uh, It may be that for you. Um, But this subject goes far beyond um, issues of finances and how we handle them. And I find that the one thing that always kept me back from being generous was fear. And uh, that's an all, that covers the broad spectrum of this. You know, we serve a generous God, don't we? I mean, he gave his only son, right? Um, And I believe that God uh, wants his people to be generous too in all things. And I think Bethany is well qualified to talk about this subject uh, because I witnessed her life uh, as um, as we were courting and dating. And her generosity level was so superseded mine. There's so much fear. But you know what? Bethany always had what she needed. She was always taken care of for it. And I had a great job. And it just felt like, you know, things were like, disappearing debt was rising it just now was like how does this she, I know what she's taking in she's, she's she's given cars she's given finances and she's always just being taken care of and I'm working my tail off 89 90 hours a week and it just seems like it's burning a hole through my pocket you know my particular situation was about finances was on finances um, so I just want to be able to open this altar as we close we're not we're closing our meeting, um, but um, I want to open the altar up for anybody that might need prayer. And I want to—I want to just submit this to you. It may be fear holding you back from really being generous. Generous. Um, and again, if you have just boiled this message down to money, you are missing the point. We serve a generous God. We're part of a generous kingdom, and God has a desire to make us a generous people. So if you do, if you need prayer, we're going to open the altar call. As we close, there's refreshments in the back. If you're not fasting, help yourself. I'm sure the coffee machine is still broken, but we're officially going to close as Will plays. And we're just going to open the altar for anybody who might desire prayer. Amen. We love you guys. Be blessed and have a great, safe rest of your day.